This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, Show 30. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, founder of Bigger Pockets, and your host here on the Bigger Pockets podcast. I am joined by my wonderful podcast co-host, Brandon Turner. You know him, the man, the myth. No, the he's legend. just a, nah, yeah. not really a legend, but uh, oh, not what's yet. up? What's hey. up, Brandon? Hey, not much. What's up with you? Yeah, you know, doing all right, man. Doing all right. Excited about this uh, this show we've got to come i think uh, i think we're gonna blow some brains with this one i i believe so so put on your thinking caps yes go, go definitely sit in your thinking chair i have yes. a thinking chair do you really i do it's like this awesome bright yellow like old-fashioned like 1800s chair that i sit in and think is it in the corner and you wear this uh, yes. cone, cone hat on it and face <laughs> the wall I, I don't wear the hat but I, it is in the corner and i sit there and i think it's nice. awesome. I'll put a picture or something on Twitter sometime. Yes, get a picture of you in the thinking Chair. corner, yes. the dunce cap on. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, we we do have a great show. We're very excited about it. And we're also very excited that this is show 30. The podcast continues to chug along and, and we continue to bring uh, you guys some pretty cool guests. So uh, it's been it's been pretty uh, exciting to watch this, uh, this show grow. Um, so uh, thank you for every uh, to everyone for listening. We 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 definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna move on to today's quick, quick tip. The quick tip of today is Bigger Pockets WYSIWYG. You can now easily post photos, YouTube videos, uh, and format uh, more easily your 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 post on the Bigger Pockets forums. Definitely jump in and check that out. Uh, we we've totally rehashed how. Uh, our posting system works, and we actually uh, re- redesigned our, our blog WYSIWYG as well to match that of the forums. Uh, we're going to start having contests on the site, things like before, after transformations and other cool stuff. So definitely come check it out. Maybe test it out with a photo of your own of one of your properties or you know the ugliest house in the neighborhood or I don't know, anything like that. Uh, so jump on and give that a look. Cool. For today's show, we are talking with uh, with a guy named Kenny Estes. Uh, if you are not familiar with Kenny, he's a regular contributor on the Bigger Pockets blog. Uh, he's got some sometimes controversial uh, things to say, and in fact, we had a, have a bit of a mini little debate in this uh, episode to come. Josh was throwing chairs. I was angry. I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> so Kenny started investing in real estate at 18 years old. Yes, now I'm throwing chairs. <laughs> like what 18-year-old has you some nerve to start investing at 18? Yeah, weirdos. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, so Kenny started investing at 18 years old and he's he's got a bit of a different model than most investors. Uh, so you guys are definitely going to love the interview and if you don't love it, you hate it, at least you listened and got some passion out of it. Yeah. Uh, but Kenny he- is I was going to say, e- either way, if you love it or hate it, come leave a comment on the show notes because, uh, yeah, comments on the show notes are awesome. Come tell Kenny what you think. and uh, Yeah, and he'll debate. be there to answer your questions too or yeah. comments. So if you hate the show, tell him why you hate it. If you disagree with him, tell him why. If you love uh, Brandon and hate me, let us know that or, or vice, vice versa. Um, <laughs> if you think we chatter too much, 
feel free to to leave that remark as well. People have <laughs> that, and you know that's okay. We don't mind. We don't yeah, mind. We don't mind. Uh, where can hey Josh? Where can they go to find that show notes page? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> they could go to biggerpockets.com slash show 30. Nice. That's biggerpockets.com slash show 30. All right. Can All I finish? Right. Finish. Do it. Go. All right. Kenny. Kenny's managing member of Pear Tree Properties. He runs uh, a blog at peartreeproperty.com. And as I said, he's, he's a contributor to the Bigger Pockets blogs. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of rent ready for $1, which is crazy. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day. 24/7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. So without further chitta-chatta. All right, Kenny, welcome to the show, man. How's it going? Oh, it's pretty good. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Is that still applicable <laughs> in this day and age? I don't know. <laughs> Yes, that's awesome. Yes. Was it, I, that was like that was like the whole Doctor Ruth thing, wasn't it, back in the day? Yeah, and every sports talk radio you ever listen to. Not that I listen to them, but apparently <laughs> that's a thing. I listen to Doctor Ruth either. But, <laughs> uh, I think I just aged myself there a little bit once again. Right? Yeah, yeah I think so. Well, no, <laughs> so, cool. Uh, yeah. 
Cool. Well, uh, welcome, welcome to the show, Kenny. Ah, oh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no. Well, listen, man. So, so tell us what is uh, what's your story? You're you're obviously a, a real estate guy. How'd you how'd you get started in the game? Actually, I started about uh, ten years ago. I went to college in a little town called Kirksville, Missouri. The name of the school was Truman State University. Yeah, I know Truman State. Yeah, I went I, to Wash in St. Louis. Oh, Wash U. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay. not too far away. It's only about a three-hour drive or so. Yeah, yeah. You two cool. old yeah. college buddies done catching up. Can we get on with the show? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <was> anyway. <laughs> yeah. That was great. So my, um, my brother actually kind of worked out. I was, what, 18, I guess, when I bought my first house. Ooh. And um, the only reason that was was my brother went to UCLA and got a out-of-state tuition. And then my parents kind of felt guilty because they paid for his education. And I went there and, you know, you know, schooling in Truman State isn't the most expensive thing in the world. So they were going to buy me a car. We got in there and then it turns out that you can buy literally a house for the price of a car. So uh, at the age of 18, bought my first house, moved into it the next year. Um, by the time I left college, I think I had five properties in the area. Um, I hired a property manager and started my full-time career in finance, of all things. Nice. Uh, what'd you do? What'd you do in finance? So, I was a high-frequency market maker, which means I wrote computer algorithms to trade the stock market all day. You don't have to be fancy, man. <laughs> Jeez, sorry. That's, that's cool. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's yeah, very, very, very. Cool. So it was interesting, but um, y- you know, you can only do that for so long. I was in that space for about. You know, about the same same amount of time because I started before I went to college. Uh, so I was in that space for about a decade. I worked in Chicago for six of those years, and then I actually moved to London um, for the last four years. And I moved, and so we kind of kept growing, kind of putting more money and you know wrangling in some investors to buy some more real estate over the years. And about August September, kind of looking at the various options on the table, and we had kind of hit a critical mass where. Um, it was a viable option to take this kind of part-time hobby and really start focusing on it and growing it into a proper enterprise. Uh, nice. So decided to do that, and um, it's been, wow, a year. That's scary. <laughs> wow. Time flies, doesn't it? I got married in there, so that probably you know breaks it up a little bit for me. <laughs> nice. Well, that's awesome. That's, uh, that's very cool. And, and I bet you a lot of the people listening are uh, are going to be as wowed as I am by 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 your getting out of college with five rental properties under your belts because I know when I was a senior in college I was uh, I was living with a with a guy uh, my roommate and I were were totally uh, into the whole idea of, of buying rental properties and it just it didn't make sense where we were looking for us and uh, you know to hear somebody come out of school with five properties that's that's awesome actually interestingly enough. Um turns out that I was buying those properties uh, before 2007. And of course, at the time, the financing was you know, free and clear, and you could pretty much get anybody to, do, to give you money. Um, after the crash in 07, actually, um, the investments down there went a little bit south. And I'm still, you know, not terrible, terrible, but I'm still doing a little bit to try to dig out of it. Fortunately, um, around that time, we started investing where we're investing now um, in the South Bend, Mishawaka area. And there, you're getting a lot higher cash flows, a lot higher returns. Um, so I kind of view my time investing 
um, in Missouri as a learning curve. Right. It's when you first get into it, there's a lot of stuff to pick up, especially when you're 18. You know, you know, you think you know everything about it. Yeah. Um, it was nice to get in there, take my knocks early and then really start applying the things I learned to building the enterprise when we moved into a different area. Yeah, that makes definitely, sense. Definitely. Definitely. So do you mind actually if we touch on that real quick? What do you what do you think went wrong in those early properties? You said you're still digging out of some of them. Uh, was it just you didn't buy them for the right price or the cash flow wasn't there what was going on there um partly we were investing um based on pro forma which you know a pro forma is you write down how much rent you get you take a ballpark estimate on all of your expenses and then hey that's how much you should be making um there was a little bit of disconnect between that and the reality of the cash flow um it did pretty well for a couple of years but then after the downturn in the market um you know, the rents went dropped a little bit as well. And, you know, we just didn't leave ourselves enough room for error. Um, Plus, we were, you know, leveraged out pretty much the gills at that point. So as the market goes down, when you start have to worry about things like refinancing, it becomes a lot harder. Yeah. Um, So the combination of, you know, and, you know, at the point we were expanding probably too quickly. Um, We were buying stuff up. We didn't really have an established track record. Um, you know, just expanding, expanding, expanding. And at one point it's like, well, okay, what we thought was actually going to happen, it didn't really happen. And now the market's down and it's going to be hard to refinance. And it's just a matter of, you know, sit on them, pay down the debt, um, kind of dig yourself out over the next few years. Yeah. So, so what can, you know, the, the folks listening, what can they do to, to avoid, uh, being in a situation like that? You know, you said maybe we bought too quickly, is there a way that that uh, might help people identify? You know, I'm buying a little too quickly. Maybe I'm growing too fast. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Sure. And this kind of goes to a, a larger point that I try to make uh, a lot: is that be very cognizant of your risk thresholds when you're first starting out, um, especially if you don't have a lot of capital. What from a fundamentals of investing, if you're starting out, you want to get out of your day job and you want to do this full time, you need to invest in a way that has a low risk threshold because you're not in a position where if things go sideways, you're going to be able to absorb. You know, if things go bad, you know, you don't get the cash flow, you have to start having to feed it, anything like that, you're, you're going to end up in a much worse situation than you began. In so other words... Don't flip houses if you're absolutely broke and have to do it all on credit card. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been there. Or, or even buy, or, you know, <laughs> is that why you had to go back to, uh, you, you kind of left and you had to go back to work, right? Yeah. I thought you were working for me because you like it. <laughs> no, the, the first time when I went to a bank, yeah, that was because I was flipping a house. It couldn't sell, the market tanked, and uh, had to refinance it, but you can't get a refinance without a job. So I went to uh, work for a year back then so anyway yeah that, that, that's cool um so yeah be cognizant of your risk threshold and do it very very conservatively right i think that in general you know you get gurus out there you know people advocating creative financing or no money down you, you know this is the best way to invest because there's no risk to your part you know in theory it'll work out but if anything goes wrong you end up in a really really tough spot very quickly so build the savings, do it conservatively, don't overextend yourself. If you, if you feel like um, you, know, you have to have XYZ go in your favor, don't count on that going in your favor. Count on it not going in your favor. If it still, yeah. makes, still makes sense at that point, 
then go ahead and do the investment. Well, you know, that's awesome. And one thing we we came out recently with the, this calculator for house flippers. Uh, it's on. It, we'll link to it in the show notes at biggerpockets.com/slash/show30. But uh, one thing that when we made this calculator, we made sure we put in there was uh, what if different things went wrong. Like what if your holding time was 90 days instead of 30 days? Or what if it was 270 days instead of 90 days? Because uh, those things are, uh, they happen to people all the time. Like your timeline goes longer, your budget doubles, um, you know, things happen. So I, I always say, you know, if you double your budget and double your timeline and it still works out as a, a profit, then it's probably a good deal to invest in because uh, you just got to be conservative like that. So anyway, that was my yeah. quick little plug for the yeah, in, in the in the finance industry, they <laughs> nice yes, in the finance industry they focus a lot on risk management, as you might imagine. That's called stress testing. Okay. Essentially, you know, find a bunch of outlier situations, and are you going to file for bankruptcy if these happen? Yeah, I mean, if you are, you probably shouldn't do the investment. Yeah, nice. that's good advice. Well, I, I I really want to go more. We want to talk more about like the whole no money down stuff. But uh, uh, before we do, let's talk a little bit more about you. Um, just so people can get to know you a little bit. So what kind of investing, after after college, you got out of that area, you moved, and where are you at now, did you say, and, and what kind of investing are you doing now? We're in uh, South Bend, Mishawaka, in Indiana. Okay. Um, so when we first came here, we bought, I think it was a 32-unit apartment building, um, and then I had like one or two investors down in Missouri. Um, South Bend, geographically, is a lot closer to Chicago, which is where I was working at the time. Um, so after we bought the 32-unit apartment building, we started realizing there was a bunch of single families in the area that had really high cap rates. I mean, this is 08, 09, the whole market was down. Um, so at that point, we started expanding our investor pool and buying up a bunch of these properties. Um, in South Bend and in you know, the United States in general, there wasn't a very strong lending market at, the mo- at that point in time, especially yeah, yeah. for investors. Um, so we actually bought everything and still own everything in cash. Every single single family home we have is cash. There's no financing whatsoever. Nice. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, so l- let me ask you about that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just curious how you went from, you know, scooping up these, these single families. I know you talked, you, you had the job and you were, you were acquiring the, the single families and then you moved. Uh, then you buy this, what did you say? It was a 32? Yeah. This 32 unit. And that was, it sounds like, paid uh, via um, outside investors, yeah? Um, that one was a family investment. It was a family it was investment. after that that we started doing the single families with outside investor money. So how did that transition happen, right? You know, you come to a point where you realize either A, you're tapped out on cash, or B, you want to start to expand at a rate a little bit quicker, obviously, than you could personally afford. So I guess it's the same thing. Um, how do you transition from from doing it on your own to, to going out, reaching out to other folks, asking them for money. And what's that like? Honestly, luck. <laughs> I mean, I know that's <laughs> as terrible as that sounds and that's not what you want to hear. Um, I happen to have a, have a pretty good job and um, I had one or two investors that got in early down in Missouri that, you know, had, I guess, respect for what I was doing or at least kind of were open to the idea of what I was doing. So once you get a couple and you start getting a track record, um, getting people to believe in you is a lot easier than if you're just starting out fresh. Um, for us, the reason we wanted to make the transition was just, frankly, economy is a scale. If you're doing one flip or one, you know, buying one buy and hold at a time, two buy and holds at a time, you're paying retail on your labor, you're paying retail on your materials. So the theory at the time was if we pool some funds, buy a larger number of properties, then all of a sudden all of our 
fixing these distressed properties and managing them and you know renting them out becomes a lot easier and a lot cheaper. So we decided to go that route. Yeah. And how did you get those those first investors uh, outside of your? Well, I know you had you said your family uh, was was the first um, investors, but then the, the the next private investors. How did how did that happen? Um, it was just you know coworkers, people that I knew um, from my day job. And that's gotcha. that's so, really key right there. I mean, yeah. people think that private investors have to be some like mysterious club, like some. You got to pay a network and yeah. pay for access to private investors, and there's all these sites offering yeah. that nonsense. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, private investors are people you know. Yep. Honestly, I get, um, you know, I get solicited, for lack of a better words, for investment funds from a lot of people who are just starting out, and you know, ninety nine percent of the time, I'm just like I have no interest in this. It's a completely unknown entity. I'm not going to do that. Yep. It is exactly what you said. If somebody knows you and knows you have a good work ethic and a good head on your shoulders, then that's when they're going to be able to give you money or be willing to give you money. Well, that's the nice. same thing on bigger pockets too. People will come on the forums first time ever posting and say, I'm looking for $100,000. And you know, besides flirting with uh, being illegal there, but yeah. <laughs> uh, just just the fact that they've never posted, they have no track record, they don't say anything, they're brand new at this, and they're asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars is, is crazy. Now, when people, you know, establish themselves and uh, participate and, and engage, I mean, I mean, myself, like six months ago, I needed some money, and a, a guy on the site lent it to me for, for a property I bought. So, I mean, yeah, it's all about establishing a track record with the people you hang out with, and uh, you know, building your reputation. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's key. Um, rural, rural. I have a hard time saying that word. Rural r- investing. R- rural, rural, rural. Say, say three times fast. <laughs> no, you'll you'll mock me. So <laughs> <laughs> that's rural, happening anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. All right, rural, rural investing. <laughs> you talk about that. I read it on your your own personal blog earlier. Um, that you like to invest in non-city areas. Why is that? Like, what can you tell us um, about kind of your strategy with that? Right. One thing um, that might help inform that I'm a massive numbers and data geek. Um, you know, I love computers, um, computer programming. You know, metrics, data, all that stuff. I mean, I did it for a living for ten years. Like, I just it's kind of part of what I do. So one of the things um, when we were looking about where to invest is, you know, you look at a graph, right, of prices in urban markets versus prices in rural markets. Um, the you can really see a bubble ending in 2007 in like a Chicago or a Miami or an LA. But if you look at a you know a Missouri or an Indiana, it's pretty much straight the entire way. Like there's maybe a slight blip, but that's it. So yep. for us, we want to build passive income so that we have a nice and cushy retirement. If we don't want to have the stress of a bunch of volatility, invest in rural areas. You're going to have steady appreciation. You're going to have steady rent rates, and you're going to have a lot more certainty about what's coming in the future. Yeah. You know, um, Ben Labovich put a post today out called Boring Can Be Sexy When Investing in Real Estate, and that was the whole idea of it was you don't have to invest in like the the cool, you know, bubble markets of uh, – yeah, I don't know. I don't want to name any names, but you know, you don't have to invest. Oh, there. name names! Not, <laughs> certainly not Detroit. Uh, no, not no, certainly oh, not, yeah. not Detroit. I no. had to. Pl- I had to throw Thank my you. Detroit. Yeah, yeah. M- yeah there you go. Mocked yeah. Them. No, you know, I'm thinking like, not that there's anything wrong with Phoenix, but Phoenix is up and down all the time. You know, like they they swing. Some Florida swings, California, yeah. and uh, a lot of people invest there. But you don't have to. You can invest in a boring area. Like, I mean, that sounds mean, but like you know, you can you can invest where things are just solid. They're just straight and they move forward. 
So right. name names. Come on, what's boring, Brandon? Oh, Lima, Ohio. <laughs> no, that, that's what that's South what the Bend, post Indiana. South Bend, Indiana. Yeah, yeah uh, Milwaukee. Sure. Last week we talked to Don about Milwaukee. I mean, that's nobody ever. You know, they don't shoot movies in Milwaukee, and it's not like the hottest place in the world. But I don't know. Investing seems pretty solid in those areas. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. One thing about all this stuff is when you're buying real estate, you're buying anything. You need to look at yourself first and foremost as an investor. An investor, you know, is in the long haul. Who's the most successful investor in the world? It's the third richest person in the world. Um, Buffett. Warren Buffett, right? He is the most boring freaking investor you could possibly <laughs> imagine. He yep. literally just sends all of his time pouring over prospectuses and reading management profiles or manager profiles. Yep. Like it, there's nothing sexy about what he's doing. He just sits there, grinds it out, finds kind of fundamental things that he looks at and buys and holds forever. Like he doesn't get involved in the tech stuff. He doesn't get involved in anything he doesn't understand. He doesn't go chasing the shiny ball. It's just, I know exactly what I'm going to do. It's going to be really simple and I'm going to do it over and over and over again. And I'm not going to go down some detour or into what the new hot commodity is. Yeah. And I think that is a danger for a lot of investors. Like we get bored. I know I get bored sometimes. Like I know what works. I know that buying these cash flow properties and I could just buy that for the rest of my life. It works, but it gets boring. It's like, I'm going to go, you know, flip this cool house here and turn it into a, you know, something different. It's fun, but it's not intelligent necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the whole ADD nation. I mean, we, we can't, we can't stay focused on on anything, and and you know, and frankly, that's why we're we're in and out of bubbles every couple of years now. I mean, it's you know, tech bubble in two thousand, the housing bubble, the you know, we're we're arguably in another housing bubble now. So it's it's just you know, if if people were to slow it down and say, listen, there's no need for you know that that those quick and potentially dangerous returns. You know, let me let me take my time. Let me do it the Buffett way. Uh, let me do it the boring way, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think it makes a lot more sense. There's uh, in in finance, there's a uh, the cab driver metric, which is you know if your cab driver ever talks to you about any stock that they're considering buying, <laughs> go out, go sell it, just <laughs> sell it immediately. You have no interest in that because it's so hyped. It's you know speculative fervor is so much into it that the pricing. Almost guaranteed not to make sense. That's funny. I've nice. never heard that before. That's that's really funny. Um, cool. Well, uh, what about like cash flow and what you know? What kind of properties are you are you buying here? Um, cash flow and stuff wise. Um, we're looking for um, high cap rates. Um, a cap rate is is just a cash flow without financing. For us, it's the same thing. Um, you know, nine to ten percent cash flow is pretty good for us. Um, we also have a fair amount of equity in these properties because we do buy a lot of distressed properties and we fix them up. So we add economic value. Um, so the return is higher than 9 to 10%, but even if we never sell them, that's what we get. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I, I like how you you don't uh, come out and say, you know, we're getting 30%, even though maybe you will get 30% when you go and sell those. I mean, you're you're talking as if you would never sell them. And I, I think that's a very, very smart way to look at this. Again, it just goes back to the conservative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you might get a lot better than that. But even if that's all you ever did was rented these things out, uh, you're sitting at 10%. That's awesome. So, um, Yeah. And I make an argument about that too, about like flipping, right? Yep. Kind of what we do, we kind of view it as long-term flipping. Um, we value stuff based on rent. 
we want our return on a you know monthly basis and we'll sell when the time's right. If the market goes up, hey, look at that, it's an extra payday. But especially when you're talking about dealing with investors, if you start delivering or you start promising 20% and delivering 10 and the market goes against you, like your reputation is trashed. Yep. Like you're never going to get any money again. Under deliver, over promise, right? Yeah. Or no, under promise, over deliver. That's the one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so, so with with those investors, I mean, what what are you promising? You know, what what would you what would you tell a potential you know private investor, somebody you work with, somebody who you run into, who's impressed with what you, you've got going on there? You know, hey Kenny, I'm I'm interested in doing this. Uh, what would you you know what, what kind of information are you going to give them? I'll give them our historical returns. At this point, we've got four years worth of data that shows how much we, you know, how much cash flow we're actually getting. Um, uh, don't promise people any number um, because a, it's going to ruin reputation, and b, you might end up in problems with the SEC. <laughs> right? Let yes. me. Uh, I have. I have actually a funny story about that. Um, when we were first kind of getting going on this, we knew a guy who ran a real estate investment group, and he promised. 12% return per year to all of his investors. So we didn't end up, whatever, we found this apartment building, we didn't invest with them. We got all these you know, emails and direct mailers and solicitations and stuff from him just continually, continually, continually. And then all of a sudden it just stopped. I didn't even notice it until about three months later and then I go to look him up and he's in jail. Because it was a Ponzi scheme. He started off with best intentions. You know, this was before 2007. He was actually getting that 12% return. And then when things turned south, he had made so many promises that he couldn't stop. So he started intermingling or commingling funds. He started taking, you know, money from a new investor to pay off an old investor. And then it just snowballed completely out of control. Ponzi scheme. He's got, I think he's got 10 years in jail. Nice, wow. nice. So, I mean, so the advice, I think, for, for people who, who might be listening would be, don't promise returns. I mean, don't guarantee, don't make any promises on what, what you're going to deliver. You know, you can show your historical uh, returns. Historical or historic? Historic? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Your historic returns. And, uh, and, and ultimately, you know, just say this is what we've done in the past. Hopefully we get something close to that. But, uh, you know, no guarantees, of course. Exactly. Yeah. Now, that, that's different, though, for private lenders, right? I mean, you got to if you're going to borrow money from somebody like, uh, you know, with a promissory note, you need to offer them an interest rate, right? I mean, how does that differ from what you're talking about? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, for us, we view our investors as partners. Um, you know, they participate in the upside just as much as we do. Um, so it's a little bit different because... Um, it's not an established security, I guess, for lack of better words. But yeah, you're right. When you take a loan, you need to give them an interest rate. But it's also not going to be, in general, you know, 10, 15, 20%, whatever you might get on your personal investment. Otherwise, yeah. you wouldn't take the loan because you're going to lose money on that trade. Yeah. So let's talk about your, the way you have that set up. You said that you view them as partners. Like, uh, how exactly does that work? You mean, you mean they're basically like shareholders? Is that kind of what you're doing? Uh, we're an LLC, so they're members. <laughs> okay, yeah. But um, yeah, so everybody puts money in. It all goes into the same LLC. Um, you put your money in today. We essentially take three months to find a property, buy it, fix it up, and find a tenant. And then at that point, you just get a pro rata ownership in the LLC based on how much you put in. So if there's a million bucks in the fund and you put a hundred grand in there, you own ten percent. 
So everybody participates in the upside. They all participate equally in the cash flow. So it's just super simple for everybody. And they get the advantage of having immediate diversification. Because now if you've got 100 properties in one LLC, when you come in, you know you own 10% in all of these properties. So you don't have as much risk with any individual investment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a different setup than most people we've, I think, and than anybody we've had on the uh, the podcast so far. Most people just offer, you know, a flat 12% like or whatever that is to uh, uh, on individual houses to, to lend the money as private money. So, um, yeah, it's definitely kind of a new concept to me, so I like it. But uh, uh, let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, I, I want to talk about something, uh, stir up a little bit of a debate here uh a few weeks ago yeah (laughs) uh you said a little while ago essentially the phrase you said was individuals just starting out with little capital and you said this earlier too shouldn't buy real estate themselves and you even did a post called is stocks better than real estate where you kind of hinted that maybe stocks are actually better than real estate for new investors so um i guess can you elaborate on that a little bit and what do you what do you mean sure um when you're just starting out you don't have, well, to start off, you don't have any economies of scale, right? You are going to be paying more for label, labor and materials than anybody who is an established investor, right? That's yeah. the first thing. Second thing, you don't have an established reputation in your area. So the, you have to put a lot of hours into going out, finding a property, fixing it up, managing it, because you A, don't know what you're doing, and B, like they're not coming through your door. So a deal comes in, you're going to spend two to three times as much, or two to three times as much time as I would have to to analyze that deal. So at that point, your actual return for your hour invested is quite a bit lower than somebody who is more established, economies of scale. Not to mention, just as you become more experienced, you know what to avoid, what to watch out for. Um, you know, just generally, your returns tend to improve as you become more experienced. Um, the other kind of leg of the argument is on the risk management side. We mentioned it a little bit before. But as a new investor with little capital, if you have you know ten grand to invest, five grand to invest, and you want to go and buy out you know a two hundred thousand, three hundred dollar property, that risk profile is completely outmatched to what your earning potential is or what you're able to absorb. You know, my argument would be, you want to have a low risk investment, build your savings, put it in the stock market for a while, and then be able to put 20-30% down on investment so you don't have to worry if things go against you. Not to mention real estate, you know, still continuing on the, the risk management side of things, it's a very low liquidity situation. If you have 10 to 20 grand and you, you know, lock it up into real estate, you, if anything goes wrong in your personal life, you have no way of accessing that in a, yeah. any reasonable amount of time. That makes sense. Whereas if you put it in stocks, hey, I'll go sell a stock and hey, move on with my life. But how do okay. you... Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering how do you how do you build experience then if you don't start? Like, how how do you suggest people build experience then? Yeah. You well, first off, build the savings. I would argue that you want to build your savings, and then you want to invest with somebody who has some experience. You don't want to start out doing it yourself because so you're saying deal. invest. Are you saying invest with somebody like in, in their LLC, kind of like you've got your setup? Or are you saying you know, give them your money like a private lender? I, I, can you clarify on that? Sure. I would argue that if you really want to get into real estate, find somebody who is already doing real estate, has an established track record, and find a way to invest along with them. Profit if they profit, don't if they don't. 
um, for one, that gets your foot in the door. You can, ha you can have all these conversations with the person, learn, pick his brain, understand what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis, understand how much work is going to be involved with it. In addition, you, are, you get that economies of scale that this established investor brings to the table. So even though he's probably going to take you know, 5, 10, 15 percent of the total profit, back out of it, you're probably going to come out ahead as far as your total returns because you're going to avoid a lot of the pitfalls which are going to wipe out your entire portfolio. Here, here's the problem that, that I see with that. Mm -hmm. what, what you're proposing is that somebody goes in and essentially acts as a mentee that gets a piece of the action under somebody who's kind of mentoring them. Uh, but I, I, I've been doing this for a long time and, and maybe maybe you can give examples of this actually working, but you know, in the almost nine years I've been running Bigger Pockets, I, I I think it's extremely rare that I've seen any example where anybody would take a guy with no experience, no background, no nothing, and give them a piece of their business out of the blue, uh, just just to let them ride their coattails, or maybe you know maybe even for a couple bucks because they don't need it. They don't need the headache, you know, unless again they're doing it with the cause and with the purpose of taking this person as a mentee. But if they got uh, fifty grand to 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 go halves in on the deal or something. Then they yeah, but Kenny's fun. not talking about 50 grand. We're yeah, I was five actually. Oh, you were? Yeah, yeah, sorry. So yeah, you're, so yeah, save up to that point, right? Save up to the, save up to that point in, in non-real estate assets. Like there's no rush to get into real estate. Real estate's a high-risk investment. Um, if you've only got 10 grand sitting around, you probably don't want to be in it, especially if you're going to be leveraging up. S grow some savings, set some aside, and then invest a reasonable amount of money with somebody who has an established track record. Yeah, and so the the thing I see with that, I mean, the the debate is some guys will say if you have five or ten grand, you should spend that on marketing. Well, I mean, the gurus will say you should spend that on training, but well, Brandon, yeah. seriously, <laughs> quote somebody better when you with your argument. <laughs> no, but now. you know, like a lot of guys will say, well, if you have ten grand, that's plenty to get into uh, direct mail marketing, and you should start your business because that ten you can turn into twenty, which you can turn into forty. I mean, essentially, you're buying a business. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? So direct. So you're talking about wholesaling? Yeah, let's say wholesaling, or I mean, even flipping. If you use the ten thousand to put as a down payment on your first flip, you know, like a hard money lender would probably do a deal if you got a good enough one. If you only had ten grand. What do you? What do so you? So on the on the wholesaling side of things, yeah, sure, but that's another job, right? At that point, you're not really in. Well, you are in real estate in the sense that you're looking at real estate, but you're not a real estate investor, right? You're kind of I, I, wholesaling is a bit of a gray area for me I would actually argue they're closer to a real estate agent than anything else because they are going out finding properties essentially you're acting as a buyer's agent right and you're getting paid a commission on the back of that yeah. it's another profession it's another job if you want that to What's be your job, job let it yeah. be your job yeah so you're 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 making the distinction and 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 I think it is an important distinction you know flipping houses wholesaling those are those are jobs those are you're not buying investments and holding on to those investments. I, 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 I tend to agree, I think, with you on that. You know, in when you're investing, you're, you're holding on to something, right? For, for, uh, well, obviously, you're holding on to a flip when you flip a house, but... but uh, Hopefully not you know, very long. <laughs> well, right. And, and you know, I, I mean, you know, I used to be a stock trader. Mm -hmm. When I was trading stock, I, I didn't consider myself an investor. I was a trader. I just traded. That was a job. Right. Very different than when I have my long-term portfolio holds. That's where I'm investing. Yes. So you know, I I think we're we're in agreement on on the actual definition here of what you know 
an investor is. Uh, there is a fuzzy area, but but I, I think there is a, a fine line there. Yeah, but the the point I'm trying to make is, if you got five ten grand out there, if you want to become a buy and hold investor right away, you know, if you follow, I mean, there's plenty of gurus out there that argue that what you should do is, you know, put no money down. Use your five grand for the closing cost. Do a hundred to one leverage, two hundred to one leverage, and buy your real estate and get the ball rolling. What I'm saying is that really the risk that you're incurring by doing that is just is it's not worth what you're getting. Not to mention just the sheer number of hours that you have to put in to find one of these properties. If you actually crunch it out with that much leverage, what your hourly wage is, I would argue that you probably make less than minimum wage. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. And depends on how long you hold it for, and of course. But if, yeah. you're, if you put in 1,000 a, a hours to make 100 bucks a month, yeah. mean, h- how long does that take to actually make sense? Now, there is an educational factor there. Absolutely. Um, where just like college, you don't, you don't make money going to college, and you go for four years and spend 100 grand. But there is, a, there is an educational factor there, um, which makes sense. But. but a lot of the people I talk to, they're kind of viewing real estate as kind of a – I don't know, maybe it's how the gurus are touting it, a, a get-rich-quick sort of scheme, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no money down, and then all of a sudden, money's running in the doors. You can do this 100,000 times, and you're making so much money, you don't have to worry about anything. And that's not really a realistic thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's probably the exception, not the rule. I mean, yeah. I, I, I like to talk a lot about no money down stuff, but and, and when I do, and you and I have talked about this before, but the my idea is no money down doesn't mean no equity down. Um, essentially, let's say there's a property worth $100,000, uh, in in a good market, if I were to get it for fifty thousand, my equity is like my down payment is the fact that I found a deal for fifty percent on of what it's worth. So you could come in and buy it for fifty with uh, fifty thousand down, or I could buy it just for half price, and it's essentially the same thing, right? I mean, yeah, I can definitely see that argument. Absolutely, there are deals like that, and you have been in the game long enough. You're going to be able to recognize this stuff. Um, as a new investor coming in out the gate, you know, dealing with maybe a buyer's agent and pretty much your only access is, you know, yellow letters or potentially MLS, the likelihood of you finding a 50% off deal like that is pretty slim. Yeah, that's definitely true. Definitely true. Well, I, I think you can find them. I just think you may not know how to identify them. Yeah, like, and, and what to do with them if you do. And that's, and that's the challenge. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, again, we, we see case after case of, of people doing it um the 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 you know the the issue i have with what you're doing and i i think what you're proposing is actually a very 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 you know safe way to go i still think you're gonna have you know i mean granted you come in with 50 grand in your pocket you know and and you've got something to offer um i i i'm gonna argue that you're gonna have as much of a challenge doing that uh and and finding somebody who's gonna take your money uh than you are uh, you know, being a new investor, finding somebody to finance you. I'll take their money. <laughs> yeah, I'll take their money. <laughs> you can come down every week and kind of just touch that along with it if you want to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, so I don't, I don't know. I, I understand. Yeah, I, I get like what you're saying, Josh. Too is, um, I guess I see both sides of that. But well, um, I mean, I, I feel like I feel like what I'm what what Kenny's saying is you kind of have to jump in. There, there's that. I guess there's that learning period, right? And and I think what you're advocating is, you know, you're going to learn while you've got your money invested with somebody. And I don't know, for me, that's actually probably a lot scarier than learning while doing it on my own uh, because you got to put a, an immense amount of trust in that person. You have to know enough to know that the person you're giving your money to is got their crap together. I mean, you know, and, and how do you do that? And how do you determine that? You know, 
it, it, it to me that just that's a little scary because I again I think a lot of investors come in and they they wouldn't know their head from their backside if mm. if you or a, a, a fraudster came in and said hey yeah I got all these great deals and I I can give you twelve percent returns give me your fifty thousand dollars. Well, that sounds good, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. And I think the trick there is you have to make sure that you invest with them. Don't allow them to invest for you, right? You want to make sure they have skin in the game. So if you're if you're investing with them and they take fifty percent ownership, then they're going to work hard and they're probably not going to be a fraudster because well, it's pretty hard to fraud when they've got fifty percent of their own money in there because they're going to be hurting themselves as well. Yeah, I got you. I, I I just think I just think you don't have enough information at that point. You're not educated enough in the game. To, to give somebody your 50 grand. I, I, I think, I really do think it's kind of a bad idea unless you have more. I, I think you've got to have a base of knowledge before you start giving people money to invest in real estate. I really do. I think, I think it's, I think, you know, even though you're, you're advocating having somebody have skin in the game, I, I still think that you're, you know, if you're coming in with totally green, uh, that, that, that could potentially go really bad for you. And I would argue that, so let's say you have 50 grand and zero understanding of real estate. So your two options at this point are to vet somebody who has, you know, minimum five years of experience in real estate that you're going to be able to invest and they're going to have skin in the game or to go out and buy a house by yourself. The latter is a lot riskier than the former. How do you vet them? Yeah, you look at you, that's when you have to actually look at what their returns are. They need to have had, a, you know, investors in the past look through, see what they've historically done, right? How do, you know, how do you know how to read a historical numbers if you don't have the experience or background? The, these are the questions that I'm asking. Yeah. I'm not trying to pick a fight with no, you. No, I'm no, no, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking like, hey, the average guy that I see on bigger pockets and on other websites and around who are, 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 are into, you know, are trying to learn real estate, I mean, no offense, there, and, and I agree, there are no stupid questions, but there's a lot of really green questions that these guys are asking. And if they come out and they say, and I ask them, and everyone, every single one of us who's ever done this has asked them at some mm -hmm. point, but, you know, when are you asking these questions now? If you don't, you know, if you're suddenly like, hey, I'm, I got my 50 grand, now I got to put it into to somebody's investment. Yeah, you know, I just, I'm trying to find that, that kind sure. of fine line. I'm not trying to fight with you. Oh, no, no, yeah. I, I would say that, um, so you're talking about the skill set necessary to understand yes. what, whether somebody's good or not. Yeah. Um, I would say to analyze a personal investment, you need to be proficient at things like looking at cash on cash returns, understanding what cash flow is, um, you know, looking at equity that you have built into it, you know, probably even things like depreciation. That's high level, really simple um, real estate stuff. If you really want to get into a real estate investment, then you've got to you know understand how much it's going to take to get work done, or how much how how you can do stress tests on your investment, things like that. These are all things you should really be doing before you make your first investment. And being able to understand whether somebody's historically performed well or not, the skills necessary for that are less than what you need to properly vet a real estate investment. Because if you can do a cash flow analysis and you know all the stuff about real estate and you put in the hours, um, you're going to be able to understand whether somebody's actually made money and has had a good return over the last five years because it's literally going to be how much did you distribute on your investment. It's a, it's a lot simpler than going the other route. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. And I mean, and that, 
that also is where, uh, I mean, sites like Bigger Pockets and this podcast come in handy. Is I mean, this is where people can learn those things. Um, now, I, I still lean more towards, I think, Josh's side of things where I say, uh, I, I'm a big fan. I mean, if you got 20000 to invest, it, this, sound, this is going to sound really bad, but I would rather have a person lose that $20,000 investing in real estate not go bankrupt, but lose that $20,000 investment in real estate, but learn how to invest in real estate than somebody to give that 20000 to somebody else and not learn how to invest in real estate. Sure. Now, right? Because I mean, I'd rather lose that 20, but gain the experience that'll benefit me for the rest of my life than to simply just be a, a bystander. And again, that's my personality. I, I like being active and I like being involved, but um, I don't and know. Then it, and then it comes down to what, what do you want to do? Right, it, yep. it's very it's very possible slash likely, especially if you're listening to this podcast, that you are passionate about real estate and you want to be in in the long haul. But it's also possible that what you really care about is creating a passive return for yourself. Mm-hmm. If you are that passionate about real estate that you want to learn everything about there and you want to become a real estate guru or a real estate investor in your own right, then absolutely, it might pay. It might be beneficial to pay twenty thousand dollars to gain that knowledge. If really all you care about is being able to retire at the age of 35 and you just want the passive income and you don't want to have to cont- sustain that in the long run, then it probably makes more sense to take that whatever 20, 30, 50 grand and invest it with somebody else. And maybe you don't even want to get too involved into the day-to-day of the real estate. Yeah. And that makes sense. And that, that, like you said, comes down to kind of that fundamental question is what do you really want? I think a lot of people, they want the financial freedom. They don't want to deal with tenants. Uh, okay. Yet they deal with tenants because they think that's the only way to get to the financial freedom. Yeah. Uh, but again, there's I mean, there's hundreds of ways to invest in real estate and uh, being a landlord or being a flipper or wholesaler. Those are just one of very many. So I thought we just talked about being a flipper wasn't investing, Brandon. Are you not paying attention <laughs> when I talk, man? I mean, come I, on. I, come on. I'm talking investing in the uh, philosophical <laughs> sense of the word. <laughs> Listeners, I'm telling you right now. It's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I dot com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor to get six months of rent ready for $1. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high tech sensors that detect break ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day. 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. 
Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Uh, moving on a little bit, but still kind of tied in with this. Um, sure. You know, we talked about being uh, flipping, landlording, things like that. You wrote a post recently and you mentioned this phrase that you should plan on being a landlord even if you're flipping um what do you what do you mean by that and that goes back to what you were talking about earlier when you were talking about um your your flipping app it's an app right yeah uh, it, yeah not, not on an iphone but yeah the web app yes okay your flipping web app um where you need to be able to stress test it how long if you end up stick, getting stuck with this thing for two years Right? How much is that going to hurt your situation? And all I'm saying is, it, when that blog post was, it's it's kind of another way to stress test. Buy it expecting to rent it out because that's the worst case scenario. If you're unable to sell it, if the market turns against you, anything like that, then you're going to have to rent this thing out. And if you're not getting return or you're losing money every month on that, then you're going to be in a pretty pretty tight spot. Yep. So one of the things to consider is how much will this rent for? Will I make money if I hold it? And only if that works as well as all of your flipping numbers, then do it. Yeah. So you're talking about multiple exit strategies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. just give yourself some flexibility. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's something that we we definitely talk about a lot, and and it's one of the chapters in the Bigger Pockets, our Ultimate Beginner's Guide, um, which uh, um, 
you know, would, would be something that would be very helpful to all those people who might be wanting to give somebody 50,000 of their money to understand. <laughs> but uh, we wrote, we, we wrote this, uh, Brandon and I wrote this beginner's guide for real estate investors, and it really covers all the fundamentals. But one of the things that we really wanted to, uh, to stress in there was, was uh, the, the, the multiple exit strategies, because, you know, it, it's, it's something that I think most newer investors don't consider. And, and I'm, I'm glad that that's, that's what you were talking about because you know if if you can look at you know two three four different exit strategies if you get in on a deal and the market turns on you or or you know a flip takes longer or or whatever happens you know you at least have different paths to to save yourself exactly i've always always had that same that same thought of uh i won't flip a house that i can't cash flow by renting out i never really like put it as eloquently as as uh, you kind of your your post did, but yeah, it's the same thing. I got a I got a duplex right now that uh, I think yeah, I, I might sell it, I might rent it, but it doesn't really matter because either way I win because I, I set it up that way at the beginning. I made sure when I bought it that I would win no matter what decision I end up actually making with it. So right. yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And uh, part of the uh, the part of the audience for that post was um, people who just come off guru courses. Like I'm, I'm there's um, real estate gurus are paid to sell. Right, yeah, so they're gonna make it make real estate investing sound as easy as possible, um, and you're gonna make a bunch of money really quick. Right, that's how they're gonna get you excited. That's how they're gonna sell more books, tapes, board games, whatever. Right, <laughs> so if you're coming off of this, you know this guru course, or you just you know played cash flow for the first time last week, and now you want to get into real estate investing, you're so optimistic that you don't take that step back and realize that actually this is a risk. There are things that can go wrong here and I actually have to account for those. So it's just kind of a a quick sanity check there. Yeah, it's great. That's awesome. That's great. Yep, definitely. Uh, Well, let's, let's get, to uh, let's get to the topic of, of uh, raising private money. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but want to want to get more into uh, into it right now. Uh, the the funding that you're you're currently using how how well let me let me circle back. How are you funding uh, all these deals today? Right. I mean, you talked about some private money. Uh, you talked about some money of your own. Are you are you still uh, self financing deals? Are you still uh, continuing to use that private money? Are you are you pooling? What's what's your current strategy? Yeah, our our approach is pretty simple, right? We have this one LLC. Um, we raise funds every three months, right? Um, so however much we get, that's how much we invest. That's how much we go out and buy. Um, fortunately, we have a, a good enough we're in a good enough spot in the South Bend area that up to this point we haven't had to worry about not finding enough deals. We've been capital restrained. So our investor pool is kind of organically growing, word of mouth, and you know now that I'm focused on it full time, doing things like bigger pockets and trying to get more of a brand recognition out there. Um, but yes, we are still taking in outside investor money. We are still at this point investing with cash only. Um, when we do invest, obviously we want to have skin in the game, so we put our own capital in as well, so that all of our investors can sleep a little bit easier. Yeah. And how- how big is how big is we? You, you're saying we. Wh- who who's on your team and and wh- what does that look like? Um, there are f- in South Bend. There's four, I guess, four time employees. Um, we have a, a bookkeeper. Um, actually, my father is actually quite heavily involved in the day to day. And then we have a general contractor and a property manager. 
So um, myself, my father, and now the general contractor are all invested in the same fund as all the investors. So that way they know that, yeah, we actually care that this thing succeeds. Nice. And, and let, let, let me ask you on, on that, how, how did you... You know, how did you get to that point, right? So one of, one of the big questions people always have in, in trying to scale their business is who's that first guy? So you know, you've got you, who, and then you were you were working with other other partners, other money partners. Mm-hmm. When did you start to bring on the these staff and these employees, and who was the first guy and why? Um, it's a bit complicated in my situation because I actually hired the first property manager, which I guess is the answer to your question. Um, we hired the first property manager in Missouri. And we started investing in South Bend. We actually kind of set up another office, a satellite office, and had her train up the employees. Um, we were at about 40 houses when we got the first property manager. Okay. The number that I hear thrown around a lot is as a property manager, you start making money around 300 units of whatever. And I've heard this on a, a bunch of different um, geographic areas. Um, so we're about break even right now. We have about 170 units. Okay. Those and those are all owned by you and your 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 folks. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So you got the property manager. You know when does the when does the GC come in? Uh, how about the other players? Yeah. Well, we get the. Um, how did that actually work? The GC comes in because you're going to have to do rehabs on them. We're buying distressed properties, so you've got to find somebody to oversee the work unless you're going to be doing it yourself, which for most people, if, you have a, you know, if it's a part-time gig, you don't want to be doing that. Um, so as you go through that, you just kind of gradually increase how much responsibility you give to your general contractor. For us, that process took about a year, a year and a half, where we went from we use this guy for one flip to now this guy is working for us exclusively and he has 30 to 50 guys underneath him. Wow. Got it. So, that, uh, yeah, that's what I'm wondering right. more about is the general contractor thing. I mean, if one, if I could say there's one thing that every investor seems to struggle with, it's the contractors. Yeah, I know that's the biggest thorn in my side. Uh, do you have any advice for people? Like, how did you, I mean, like you said, you started with one deal. I guess that's one way to start. But uh, any, any other advice for us? Man, I wish I knew. <laughs> <Weird>. <laughs> It is brutal. We have we found one general contractor. We've probably turned through ten others that we've given at given goes at one point or the other, and it just didn't work out for various reasons. Um, it's it, it's tough. Um, you especially if you're kind of coming at it from the investor mindset. You know, connecting with a general contractor who's very much on the low level. I just want to get my hands dirty and get this stuff done. Like, there's a big there's a communication gap in there. Um, and just finding somebody who has a good work ethic and is able to manage crews and knows everything about house, it's, it's actually really hard individual to find. Yeah. Which and, uh, and incidentally goes back to the argument about it's one of those things that once you're established, it's easier to do than if you're just starting out. Yep. And I got to tell you, that it's kind of sad and it, it, to me. It really is troubling and sad be, because you know we look at all these various trades and, and maybe it's a symptom of, of things, but... but you know, I, I just think there's got to be, you know, listening to the show right now, there's got to be a handful of, of contractors. And, and, you know, the sad thing about it is many of those guys suck. You know, <laughs> many of them just don't get it. Show up on time. Yep. You know, do, do your job Answer and your do phone. it well. Answer your phone. Little tiny things that if you did that, I mean, you'd get so much work, it would be crazy. It'd be yep. stupid, you yep. know, and, 
and I just, you know, the same applies for investors, of course, as well. But, you know, since we're, we're balking and bitching about uh, <laughs> contractors here, I mean, yeah, I, I can't tell you. I, I don't think I've worked with a single contractor, and I've worked with quite a few, who I, I'd, I'd go out and refer to people. And I, I've yet to find somebody that I've been happy with, you know, for one reason or another. They don't show up. They're late. They don't return phone calls. You know, their, their work is a little bit sloppy. You name it. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, get it right, guys. It's yeah. not that hard. Well, I think it goes back to the the whole. If you've read the E Myth, uh, the story of the E Myth is about a, like a a lady who's a baker who bakes pies, and the guy telling the story basically through this whole book is, you may be good at baking pies, but it doesn't mean you're good at running a pie baking business. Yes. And so the contractors are great at baking pies. They might be, but they're terrible at running a pie baking business and just yes. terrible at it. And uh, I don't know how you find yeah, I don't know how you find them that are good at I've, both. I've owned probably. T- Four, eh, three to four hundred homes, and every six to nine months, I go through this thing of, oh, I need to find a new contractor because I'm so dependent on this one guy. And in the ten years since I've been doing this, I found two: yeah. one in Missouri, one in Indiana, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. amazing. That's hard. So amazing. I guess when you find them, you just hang on to them and pay, pay them well and treat them well. Exactly. So, um, well, what about uh, your investors? Going back to that, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but uh, investors, accredited investors versus non-accredited. What do you? Uh, first of all, what, are the, what is the difference for those who don't know? And so, an accredited do? investor is an individual who has made two hundred grand for the last two years and expects to make it going forward, or a couple that made three hundred grand um, in the same thing, um, or they have a net worth of one million dollars, excluding their personal residence. Okay. Um, so this is more of an SEC regulation um, because you can't generally solicit um, to non-accredited investors. Um, you, how do I phrase this? Though that is changing. As your invest, it is changing. Hopefully, if the SEC yeah. ever sends down the guidelines on the Jobs Act, which passed last April. Yeah, and I heard they've made some changes in the past few in the past past few weeks, but still not everything's clear yet. But right, yeah. Anyway. And then the other thing is if you have a bunch of accredited investors, you don't you have more leeway about when you have to register as an SEC company. Okay. So if you have all accredited investors, then you can have two billion dollars under management and nobody's gonna bat an eye. Right? If you have half are non accredited investors and you have, you know, fifty million under management, you're probably gonna run into some problems. And so and, what do, and what do you do? What do we do? Yeah, do you do accredited or non accredited? Um, the people we first started out with, um, it was pre-existing relationship. Most of them were accredited. Um, now it's all accredited. Okay. All new investors are accredited. You know, and, and the funny thing about that whole thing, you know, to go off on a, on a slight tangent here, <laughs> you know, we, we talked about having, you know, some guy who's got 50 grand to, to loan out who doesn't know their head from their backside. Well, you know, just because you're accredited doesn't mean you know your head from your backside either. And, and you know, interestingly, the SEC just makes the assumption that that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I've got a friend out here in town who's uh, a former football player, and he now trains football players how to manage your money. And the reason he does that is because so many football players lose their shirts because they don't know their, you know, they don't know how to invest. They don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, money doesn't really mean anything. So, yeah, I, I just think the rules are so arbitrary and just these, these numbers are, are just meaningless. You know, a dentist who's got, you know, who's making a good business isn't necessarily going to know how to invest any better than, than grandma who's been studying the charts for, you know, 30 years, 40 yeah. years. 
Yeah. And actually, interesting on that, the, the argument I've heard about why the accredited investor rules are in place is not so much that they know what they're doing, but that they're not going to get hurt if it goes against them. Yeah. And right. the thresholds, and don't quote me on the year because I'm strangely enough terrible with remembering numbers, <laughs> but I believe those thresholds were actually set in the 1970s. Interesting. Nice. And they weren't, they weren't tied to any appreciation or anything like that. So back in the 70s, if you were making two, 300 a year and you had a million dollar net worth, that's, you know, you're, you're going to be okay. But now, I mean, there's, I know a lot of people who are, you know, making that, that $200,000 level. And if an investment goes bad, they're pretty much hosed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so somebody who's, who's listening, who's got an, you know, a fairly established uh, real estate business going on. You know where where would they go and and find uh, accredited investors you know, outside of their own uh, pool of of uh, friends and family? Yeah, that's a good question. Honestly, um, that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. <laughs> nice, because nice. um, right now our investor pool is entirely word of mouth. Right? Yeah. Um, you know things like Bigger Pockets, getting my voice out there. I'm certainly getting a lot more interest from potential investors who kind of are approaching me. Um, nothing's really solidified at this point. Um, I guess just. Get your name out there, do some branding, and have a strong track record. Have a strong track record, and don't be shy about telling people what your track record is. Is yep. you know that's at least how we're approaching it. But <laughs> who knows if that's going to work out in the long run? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I've got a feeling that uh, potentially after this show, you might have uh, more accredited folks getting in touch. But uh, that's just a feeling I've got. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, and, and it, the, obviously, like the beauty is you're not you're not pitching anything here. You're you know you're obviously helping to to uh, you know share share good information and and you know I, I i you know even though we had a little mini debate back uh, a little while ago i mean it's, it's it's very interesting what your strategy is and and your theories because i i think you're one of the more reserved folks that we've interviewed so far and and, and i appreciate that as somebody who's who's highly risk averse um what so what what would you say then going forward is is your exit strategy you know what's what's the end game how do you uh you know, do do you just kind of continue to build that portfolio, Warren Buffett style? Do you sell your business at some point? How does how does it move forward? Yeah. So part of the reason we're so conservative is because we're super aggressive about where we want to go with it. Um, our exit strategy is to form a REIT and go public. Nice. That is bold. So to form a REIT, um, it's it's a two step process. A REIT is a real estate investment trust, I think, is what it yes. is. Yep. Yep. Um, so to form a REIT, you have to have at least 100 investors. That's the first thing. No investor can have more than like 15%, I want to say. Once you form a REIT, then you have shareholders, you have board of directors, your regulatory scrutiny increases quite a bit. Um, to go public, the bare, bare, bare minimum of assets under control you have to have is about $100 million. But once you do go public, so let's say hypothetically we're getting 10% returns for our investors every year. If the market stayed exactly where it was today, the average public REIT yield is between 3 and 5%. So if we were to get the same pricing and we were getting 10% before we went public, in theory, it would double the value of our portfolio effectively overnight. Whoa. Does that make sense? Repeat that and, and, and explain it in, sure. in child talk so that <laughs> Brandon can understand. <laughs> I, I saw his eyes that. light up. I was waiting for that. No, I, you know what? I, I half got it myself, so okay. clarify for all of us. Let's think about it this way, right? Um, we'll flip it around and just look at the distributions, yeah. right? If you've got a $50 a year distribution, 
right? And yeah. in the public market, um, that's worth uh, whatever a thousand dollars, right? Because if you look at if you look at a five percent return, then if a five percent return and you're getting fifty dollars out of it, that's the equivalent of the share being worth a thousand bucks. Does that make sense? Bucks for a share, okay. Or for, for for that for that cash flow. Okay, okay, you're doing five percent return on a thousand bucks is fifty bucks. Yes, yes, exactly. I got that. Right? Yes. Yeah. So now, if there's a hundred dollars worth of cash flow, so you multiply the you've doubled your value. Yes. Yes, that's it. So okay. for us, we're coming in. We have effectively per share. But how have, did you up it to a hundred dollars in cash flow? That's that's what our returns are. If we come in with an established track record of ten percent per year, and the market's five percent, then it's the same situation. Okay, I, 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 okay, I fully understand that. Maybe, maybe it was just how you were saying it. I, I honestly, honestly, had no idea what the hell you were talking about. Fair now, enough. now I get it, and it's that's obvious. Tell you what, it, that is like the most naive, simple way to look at it possible. Like. Between now and we reach that point, the market's going to be completely different. I have no idea what the public reads are going to be. I mean, sure. I'm assuming everything stays the same. When you go public, you're going to have to get underwriters involved and investment sure. banks, and you're going to be paying seven figures at least to get onto an exchange, right? right. So that's going to move some of your values. So like this, is just like pie in the sky, back of the envelope. This is a possibility, and that's where we want to get to. Gotcha. We might get there and realize that hey, you know, it's actually not as good as good of an idea as we thought, and we'll just stay at that size. That's a gotcha. possibility. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right. Well, listen, we're we're running, starting to run on a little bit, and 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 I think uh, you know some some people's brains might have been busted. I know, <laughs> I know, mine might be. Uh, but uh, why why don't we jump into our our fire round, our our you know our our famous famous fire? Sure. Awesome. Yeah. Famous fire round here. Uh, and 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 I think I think Brandon wanted to kick this thing off. So Brandon, all right. So again, it. these all come from the forums. I just pulled them all this morning from the last like twenty four hours from the forums. So uh, first first of all, if you had to leave your area right now and invest elsewhere, where would you go? Mm-hmm. It's funny we're trying to figure that out right now because <laughs> we do. I'll take that as a non-answer. <laughs> we want to for for our particular type of investing. We want to have a population between 100,000 and 250,000, and we want cap rates to generally be, uh, the, the fair market value cap rate to be about 8%. Um, we haven't really found the, ooh, this is the spot we want to go, but we're looking. Okay. 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 Do you ever structure rent-to-own leases for your tenants? So there's, it's one of those weirdly defined terms. Everybody has a different way. I kind of know it as land contracts. Um, it's a similar concept. I don't do it because I have an ethical issue with it. Um, so you're effectively charging somebody rent and then, at least in a land contract situation, you're charging somebody rent and then you're expecting them to pay property taxes and upkeep the property. So from a tenant's point of view, on a monthly basis, they're paying significantly more than they would be if they were just renting. Right, so the actual return on their investment versus just saving that money and buying it in two years is actually a lot worse. Not to mention, there are so many unscrupulous people that you know don't put the deed in the name of the tenant. Um, they s- just don't pay the mortgage. The house gets foreclosed under somebody who is doing a rent to own. Like, I just don't want to touch it. I think it hurts the tenants. It's taking advantage of people who. Um, 
might not have analyzed it from a, a purely return point of view. Okay. Fair enough. Fair, Fair enough. enough. Definitely. All right. So when you, uh, if you have a tenant who sucks and they either leave or you have to evict them or you kick them out or whatever the deal is, at what dollar point does it make sense to go after them? Like, you know, if they owe you a thousand dollars versus ten thousand, where do you go after them and sue them or try to uh, garnish wages, whatever? Yeah, sure, totally. Um, any amount of of owed balance, we get a judgment. So we actually go to court and get the judgment. Um, we go through the the process of trying to garnish their wages. They owe us about more than a grand. Okay. Um, as far as handing them over to collection agencies, um, our, we're in a relatively rural area, so our balances don't get massive. And there's just not a lot of interest. Like, if you guys know any good collection agents who specialize <laughs> in, in tenant balances, send them my way because I would love to find somebody who, to track down some of our former tenants. Yeah, yeah I've never had success with that either. Yeah. I mean, gar- garnishing, I've collected maybe a couple bucks, but, you know, really nothing more than that. Yeah. Um, all right. So, what do you do if you have 12 showings of, of a rental property and still no takers? Um, drop the price. <laughs> good answer. There yeah. you go. All right. What if you had a hundred dollars a month for marketing? Like you were looking for property, and you had a hundred bucks a month. That's it. How would you oh, spend looking, it? Looking to buy property. Yeah. Let's say you're looking to buy a property, and you're uh, you got a hundred bucks a month. I mean, this is kind of going back to the starting. He hours. wouldn't. He would save yeah, you it wouldn't, until but... fifty thousand dollars. Hypothetically, on, though, if Are you, you had a hundred, <laughs> what would you what would you do? What's most important? Um. So for buying property, the one thing that has had the most um, success for us is we have our little um, uh, maintenance, or not maintenance, our contractor crews. Obviously, they have their trucks that are company cars or whatever. Um, we just paint on the side of them in big, bold letters. We buy houses and a phone number. Nice. That has, because you know, they're actually doing work. People can see the quality of what's coming out of it. They know you're going to you know, manage, pro- manage property well, everything like that. We get more calls from that than anything else. Okay, and, and I'm, I'm going to ask you, so is, is this like, this is like a pickup truck with like a stenciled we buy houses or is this like, you, you know, <laughs> with, the, with the brush? Yeah, you know, did you brush <laughs> we buy houses like, you know, somebody might do on a cardboard, uh, you know, sign on the corner? It's, it's stenciled and it's, it's on the back, oh. right? So it's like the, the actual pickup part of the truck, the, the hauler bit. Okay, so it's professionally uh, posted on there versus like, you know, you had me thinking you literally just like wrote <laughs> with a brush we buy houses. That's right. <laughs> I was getting a little nervous about yeah, actually, we found a five, found a five-year-old to do it, just so it looked really, yes. really amateur. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's the thing, though. I mean, because you know, some of these really amateurish signs are tend to be effective. That's you know, and so I was, I was curious. And um, I don't know that because we stenciled it, it's any more effective. I mean, the people who are calling that number, they just want the f out, right? Like, I don't yeah. think they really care the quality of the sign. Yep. Yes. Yes. I'm glad you said f. Uh, so we didn't have to bleep you. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, do you pay off personal debt first or start investing in real estate? Uh, that's a hard question. Um, hmm. We didn't say it was going to be yeah, a no, that's fire fair. round. Yeah. It depends on the person, honestly. Um, it, I think this goes back to our earlier conversation about, you know, is it worth your time to start investing right away? Should you build the nest egg first and go into it? If you are passionate about real estate and you want this to become a career and you have a moderate amount of debt, then it might make sense to go straight into real estate. Um, if you really are just trying to build passive income, then you really you need to compare kind of what your returns 
you'd expect on the real estate are versus what your interest rate on your credit card or whatever your personal debt is. And if there's a large enough, I mean, if you're if your credit card is charging you 5% per year and you're able to make 10% in real estate, then yeah, it probably makes sense to do the real estate and then just pay off the debt over time. Cool. Uh, do you rent to Section 8 tenants? We do. Yep. Okay. And you're okay with that? You recommend that? Um, it's, it's a bit more red tape, but they're very good at paying because it's the government. <laughs> Right, so you don't you don't have to worry about collecting. Um, you have lower turnover, all those things. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, uh, last question: If somebody comes to you and is desperate to sell their house, the guy that you referred to earlier who wants to get the f out, as right. as I quote you, mm-hmm. uh, but but they have no equity. Is there anything you can do? Are they underwater or they have no equity? Uh, let's say no equity. I think. Yeah, just yeah, just no bro- equity, like nothing. Yeah, dead even, just even, right? I mean, yeah. Okay, um, so in that situation, I mean, they'd have to pay the closing fees, right? And they'd have to get out there. Is that? Yeah, so they yeah, can't really yeah. sell it because they can't really afford it. Let's say right. they can't afford their yeah exactly to yeah. pay the six percent. They can't cover any of that stuff. Okay, yeah. Look, um, you can go to the lender and you can try to organize a short sale. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. We've tried that a couple of times in the past, and you know, back in oh eight oh nine, yeah, you could really get them to do it. Market's turning around a bit. That option is becoming less and less viable. Um, you can do some owner financing to help them out a little bit, but one thing that we try to do is figure out what we're good at and just do that a lot. Like we, to go back to what we we're talking about, being very stupid or not stupid, but simple investors. So when you start doing owner financing, um, then you start needing to do credit checks and you become a lender, and that's not our core competency. So we just don't do that. Gotcha. Cool. Gotcha. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Let's uh, let's move on to the the last part of the show. Our famous famous four. four. Seriously, <laughs> I left famous four. Yes, <laughs> that was Kenny. That was Kenny. <laughs> yes, there you go. All right, Kenny, famous four. What is your favorite real estate book? Um, the book that got me into real estate investing um, was the Granddaddy Rich Dad Poor Dad. Yep. Um, I reread it actually last week, just because why not. And uh, there's no substance in it whatsoever. <laughs> it's, it's really just saying the same thing over and over again, which is invest in stuff, right? <laughs> um, so it didn't really stand up to the test of time. As far as books that are really informed my my investing and were had a lot of substance and content, yeah. um, investing in real estate by Gary Eldred was very very good. Okay, okay, there you go. Nice. Cool. What about your? Uh, your favorite non-real estate book? Any any business books that, that you think would uh, be helpful to uh, to the listeners? Oh, business books. Um, the E Myth Revisited was pretty good. Again, that was very high level and doesn't give you a lot of detail about the actual um, the day to day of what you need to do. Um, kind of related, and I'm finding it. It's not really a business book, but the last book I finished was On China by Henry Kissinger. Really? And okay. it's whatever since the 50s, whenever he started dealing with China, tracking through how the landscape has changed and how their approaches have changed. But the bit that really struck me, and I actually wrote a recent blog post on it, was how China has managed to stay one country while there's been all this upheaval all over the rest of the world. And it's, there's a lot of takeaways that you can apply to your investing strategy and how to build something that's really going to last. 
would that have something to do with the the guns that they point at the heads of their citizens or the tanks perhaps <laughs> that they that they plow you know plowing people's houses down I, mean, I <laughs> don't know certainly doesn't help but I was okay. talk, I'm talking more like you know in 2000 BC it was a country when we were still on the height of the Egyptian pharaohs right and it's still the same country yeah. today yeah. so that's that's there's something going on there absolutely absolutely cool, cool. What about um, uh, hobbies? Yeah, hobbies. I I read that you were an Ironman something. Wasn't that right? I I I did an Ironman in Cozumel, Mexico, back in 2011. That is, is a triathlon, a, right? It is a triathlon. It's a two and a half mile swim. It's a 112 mile bike ride and a full marathon at the end. Again, showing off. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I I hey, I bike. You know, four miles every couple days. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Hey, wow! I I never run more than five minutes um, before I started training for that, and a year later I was there. So it's not it's not as hard as everybody. It's just it's just time consuming, really. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Right. La- last question then for the day: What mm-hmm. do you believe sets apart the investors who succeed from those who don't? Uh, first and well, it's it all it's discipline, right? You find out what you're good at and do it. Right. Focus on it. Don't get distracted by the shiny balls. We talked earlier at the very beginning about shiny balls <laughs> like yeah you know like the shiny ball that's bouncing <laughs> that's bouncing in front of you and then you, you, know, you act like a squirrel and you go chase after it sort of thing. <laughs> shiny objects yeah, yeah i got you i just you know you know you still have a thought i thought i'd add some maturity <laughs> some, to some fourth grade humor <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and then we, you know we started with the whole thing about warren buffett right invest simply do it conservatively do it for the long haul and you'll be you'll be all right cool nice Good. All right. Well, listen, Kenny. That was great. Lots of uh, lots of interesting uh, stuff. Uh, a a one of our one of our few mini debates, I'd say. Uh, yeah. I I I, I think. Uh, listen, I I think there's a lot of viewpoints, and and my goal is to to get as many out as possible. Uh, we you know there's there's no one way to do it. Uh, the the only way. I believe that you shouldn't do it is, uh, you know, you shouldn't rush in and you, you shouldn't uh, listen to the people who, who can tell you that you're going to make, you know, millions overnight. That's, that's absolute nonsense. And uh, I, I do like um, your, your philosophy on risk aversion and things like that. So it's, it's great. Uh, but uh, listen, thank you so much for being on the show. Hopefully uh, we, we don't leave too many people scratching their heads on the, uh, the REIT uh, <laughs> there and, and, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you on the Bigger Pockets blog and around the site. All right. Well, thanks for having me, guys. All right, guys. That was Kenny Estes. Hopefully, you enjoyed the show as much as we enjoyed uh, bringing it to you. Uh, definitely a, a lot of uh, interesting discussions there. And 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 as we said early in the show, if you've got any questions, uh, be sure to uh, or comments, uh, be sure to leave them in the show notes at biggerpockets.com/slash/show30. Otherwise, want to thank you guys again for uh, engaging and being a part of the podcast, being a part of the Bigger Pockets community. If you don't have a membership, jump on. It's biggerpockets.com. Sign up today and get involved. Uh, definitely follow us on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash biggerpockets. And, and our YouTube channel, you know, it's not getting enough love, guys. I mean, we are putting out some really cool interviews. Brandon is putting out some awesome videos. And uh, mm-hmm. they are they're awesome, Brandon. They're awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And if you guys want more of those, you have to subscribe. 
if you do not subscribe, if we don't get people doing that, you know, we, we think you guys don't care and then we don't, we don't spend the time to, to put out the content. So if you like the videos, subscribe, you know, hit that little thumbs up button next to the videos and let us know that you guys are, are interested in these videos that we're doing. The channel's youtube.com slash biggerpockets. That's about it. Jump on iTunes, leave us a review, leave us a rating, and uh, you know we'll we'll see you around at the at the next show. Thank you so much for being my co-host, Brandon. You are welcome. Thank you for being my host. <laughs> I am your host. All right, guys, we'll see you at the next one. I'm Josh Dorkin. I'm out of here. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors, large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. You're to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the BiggerPockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming small multifamily boot camp with Chris Lopez and Leka Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the small multifamily boot camp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.